Hi friends, I'm Anna. And I'm Renee. And you are listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Hello again and welcome back to the show. This week we're going to discuss feedback and updates. We're going to talk about Monstrous Volume 2 by Marjorie Liu and Sanantakata. Then we're going to discuss Robots vs. Fairies Story Number 3, Murmured Under the Moon by Tim Pratt. And then we're going to talk about It Takes Two to Tumble by Cat Sebastian. And then of course, recommendations. Yay! How are you doing, Renee? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm fine. So, Anna, 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 what are the haps with the book smugglers? What's going on? What do you got coming up? Uh, right, right at the moment, we are knee-deep into edits, really, just preparing for the year ahead because we had so much going on. So we just, we're just slowly working, editing our short stories, our novels and the novels that we have this year. We've been publishing our new contributors to the blog, which is something that we raised money from with uh, with the Kickstarter. So we have our regular contributors now, members of Smuggler Army, and that has been fun. And I think that's it, really. And trying to find time to read. How's that going? Hard. I was hoping to read about two books a week, and I may be able to, but it's hard. Agreed. What is the first thing that you'll be publishing this year? What's the first story that's going to come out? Do you know? The first story that will come out from The Awakenings is When the Letter Comes by Sarah Fox, which is a really beautiful story about a trans kid who knows one day a letter will arrive that will allow for them to go to a magic school. And then one day the letter does arrive, but it arrives for the kid's sister and that bittersweetness and what happens to the person left behind is what the story is about and it's really really beautiful can you pre-order it yet no we haven't even started editing this one yet (laughs) with amazon for self-published authors and tiny publishers such as ours you can only set up a pre-order when you have the final file with big publishers, you just say to Amazon, oh, I'll have this book in two years, and Amazon will allow you to set up a pre-order with no cover, with nothing. But with small publishers or self-publishing authors, they don't allow you to do that. Amazon is oppressing the little guy. Well, it's also helping the little guy. I guess it's a bigger chance that they take, right? Because big publishers, I mean, what's the chance that they are not going to have something ready when they say they will? For the small guy, imagine Amazon will accept tons of pre-orders from people and then the book never appears. Can people add it on Goodreads? Uh, uh, Not yet, because for you to add on Goodreads, you also have to have an ISBN when we haven't got to that stage yet. Oh my god, Anna, how am I going to remember the story? You have to tell me about it. Okay. I'll remind you. Okay, thank you. You are also a Kickstarter backer, so we'll get an update about it too. If anybody's looking for a book smugglers publishing story to read you guys can all go read my favorite story of last year that they published called av cantor has six months to live by sasha lamb 
I love that story. I love this story too. I nominated it for Hugo. Sure did. One day my Hugo will come. What about you? What's the haps with you and all the different things that you are doing? I hear tell of a book club? Yeah. Renee, where do you find the time? I don't. I just make it up. Yeah, anyway, I got really frustrated because my library doesn't seem to have a very robust book club. I could never find anybody to tell me who's a member of it or how to join it. So I was just like, screw it. I'm going to start my own science fiction book club. And I did. It's called Jonesboro Rocket Reads. Anna, uh, our friend Forest of Glory, who often does recs for us, gave me the title. That's a great, great title. And our first book is Provenance by Anne Leckie. Excellent. Good choice. Have you had anyone signed up yet? Me and Zach are the only one. Only people. So where is he going to be? We're going to have it at a restaurant that we go to every every Friday anyway. And I'm just going to have it there the last Friday of every month. I'm really excited about it. The worst case scenario is that nobody ever comes to it. And I just end up reading one science fiction book a month, which is not a bad thing. Oh, exactly. And then you go out and you talk to Zach about it, which is also not a bad thing. Yeah. I also signed up for a program called Women Can Run, which is a free program that they do in my city. I signed up for the Beginning Walkers program. And so every Tuesday and Thursday night, I go out and I do a walk. Mostly it's just about getting into the habit of walking again. Also, it's working on my fear of being like in public. We also have uh, a few other updates. We started to do Patreon-only nonfiction discussions. We are reading inferior by angela sani and we will be discussing it kind of how we're discussing robots versus fairies one chapter at a time so if you want to get the book and read along with us to discuss it and learn a bunch of new things about women and science you can feel free we would love to have you you get those episodes on patreon if you donate to us monthly at five dollars or more and then the last thing on our update list is question tuesday we're finally going to do a question tuesday we have several questions in the hopper that we've had a long time. I'm really sorry it's taken so long. But if you want to throw more in, you can go and submit some questions. I would like for you to ask Anna a bunch of questions so we can reveal all her secrets. Secrets about what, man? I don't know. We're going to see what they come up with. The forum is actually on our website. You can go to fangirlhappyhour.com slash questions dash answers. Monstrous Volume 2, The Blood, by Marjorie and Blue and Son of the Kata, follows the adventures of Micah Half-Wolf and her companions Kippa and Rin, a talking cat with multiple tails, as they search for answers about Micah's past and her mother's plots. Volume 2 is inevitably going to have spoilers for Volume 1, so if you haven't read Volume 1 yet, we highly recommend it. It was one of our favorite comics the year it came out. And that's probably going to be spoilers for this volume too. It's really hard to discuss this comic without spoilers. Consider this whole segment spoilerific. When I describe Monstrous to people who I'm recommending it to, I describe it as an epic fantasy graphic novel. That's a very good um, way of describing it. And it also kind of maybe explains my conflicted feelings about it. Because epic fantasy by its own nature, I guess, if that's something that you can say about a genre is very rich 
It's very detailed. It has a bunch of characters. It often involves different characters doing different things and going on different arcs. And it grows and it grows and it grows from there. And I feel like maybe a graphic novel, it's not the best way of telling an epic story. Maybe. I like it, though. You do? Yeah, I thought it was a little bit confusing because there was so much to it. There was so much to it in this volume. I think maybe the difference for me is that I read it in floppy. Every time I get a new issue, I read the preceding ones again. I read 7 when it came out, and then when 8 came out, I read 7 and 8. And then when 9 came out, I read 7, 8, and 9. And I stack them like that. I just reread. And I think that may be how I'm making it through it easily and understanding what's going on. I'm not sure how that would work volume-wise. Because even when I went to reread it for our discussion, I read it the same way. I stacked it. And it took me like two hours. It didn't take me that much longer. But uh, I felt like I had a better grip on the world. And I would notice new things every time I went through it. About the world building, about some of the background art, and the way that Takata put things to pick up in the background of the story. So I think that Monstrous is a comic that sort of requires close reading. It's very different than other comics. It reminds me a lot of Pretty Deadly, kind of, in the way that the story is not always explicit and sometimes is not even implicit. You sort of have to figure out from context clues what's going on. Sometimes there are no answers yet because there are so many things that you just don't know. Yeah, it's hard to like, keep alliances straight. Well, but I think that's probably also due to the ongoing arc because we also don't know. There's yeah. no answers to, to that question. Who are the good people or the bad people? Who are her allies and who are her enemies? And maybe they are both and all the same. So in this volume, Micah and Kippa go to Micah's godfather, who is a tiger. She wants to go to an island where her mom went years before to figure out parts of her past and her mom's past to solve the mystery of the monster that's inside her now. The monster inside her, his name is Zin. Its name is Zin. He, it. It just, it looks a lot like um, the feeling that I have from reading about those monsters and those creatures that came before and now one of them is inside of her. It reminds me of... H.P. Lovecraft's monsters. I've never read Lovecraft, so... I have never read Lovecraft, but I know of it. And I have read retellings of Lovecraft by other authors. And it kind of, like, makes me think of Cthulhu and all of those many-eyed monsters that live in the sea or whatever. So I don't know if they are getting inspiration from that, too. And just, like, being really cool about it because of course we know how Lovecraft was like a racist piece of shit and considered there are two women of color writing this story and perhaps even getting inspiration from his creatures here's a fun fact the monster is called Cthulhu as a kid I read everything I didn't listen to a whole lot I didn't have a lot of a lot of people read to me. I did most of it myself, and there was nobody to tell me how to pronounce words, so I did a lot of sounding out of things. And so until my late 20s, I called this monster Chutlu. That's how I pronounce this word. That's wrong. And I still do it sometimes. I'll, I'll slip up and say Chutlu, and everybody will look at me weird, and I get embarrassed. I'm pretty sure I said it wrong, too. I don't know. I, I guess Cthulhu is the right way to say it, but even like, but I guarantee if I had to say it again later, I'm gonna be like Chutlu, and everybody's gonna be like, "Oh, Renee." Oh, listen, I'm not gonna be too precious about monsters created by a racist. So, <laughs> do we think that Micah is gonna kill Keeper? No, I think she will. 
because they keep coming back to this over and over and over again. And of course, it's part, I guess, of our arc to resist that temptation. She teaches Kipa the way that her mother used to teach her to, which is really like bordering, I wouldn't say bordering, full-on abusive tactics. But because they keep talking about over and over again, so there's going to be a, a moment when a decision has to be made. And either she's going to pass on that test and not eat Kipa, or she will fuck all and eat Kipa. And I think this is going to get much darker before it gets lighter, if it ever goes, going to get lighter. So we have our own fangirl bat. The way that the monster interacts with Kippa, there were some cute moments in more recent issues that make me go, mm, maybe. So I'm curious what you'll make of the upcoming two issues and the interactions that Kippa and Zen have with each other. As the story continues, Zen is being humanized more and more, which is weird to say about a giant monster of death. We see some of his background and how he killed his friend. Because he wanted to kill every single human. Which I think, maybe we learned in the first one, I can't, I'm a little fuzzy on where we learned it at this point. There's another monster inside one of the enemies that is chasing Micah across the world. There are two monstrum, and I'm pretty sure that that's going to be a thing that comes to be relevant again. The shaman empress held Zen inside of her, and now Micah is doing it because Micah's mother wanted Micah to have this happen to her. And she went through several different tactics to to get it to happen. I think my biggest question right now, because like I said, this comic has a lot going on in it. There's a lot happening. Is the mask. And what the heck is going on with the mask? I don't know. There are pieces scattered all over, right? She only has a piece of it. And she put on the mask and something happened. We saw her father at one point. There is a man that the witches... And some of the other people who were on the other side with the other mo- monster. And there's a man and they have, they have control of him. And I think that's Micah's father. Because he has the eye. Yeah. That's how, that was the very last scene of this, of this volume. Is her father human? It's a good question. I don't know. I guess we're going to find out more later. I think the most confusing part for this comic for me is the alliances and the groups. So you have like the witches... And then there's some humans, and then there's the Arcanics, and then the cats. And the cats are necromances. And then the Dust Court. And I'm just a little confused where everybody fits. And I think this is where your point about where the comic kind of falls down. Like, prose epic fantasy is a little bit clearer about alliances, and who belongs where, and who is allied with who. In the comic, it's a little harder to make clear those lines, so you can follow along and know who belongs with who. And that's the hardest part I have found of the comic so far, is knowing the groups, who's along with what group, knowing what group is relevant at any current time. It's difficult. In this volume, they go to an island. Where her mother had been before, and other people had been before, but nobody talks about it. And then we learn why, because people forget what they see in the island. And then they meet one of the ancient ones, a wolf. No, it was a fox. Who was nuts. And the whole island was an illusion. There were people trapped there, too. And that's where we learned about Zen and his backstory. And how he had an ally who wanted to leave that world because they were killing everything in it. And Zen was like, no, we're going to stay here. I don't care what you want. When have they changed their minds? Because it feels like they have. I think probably when they morphed. 
with humans. Zen came to be with the Shaman Empress after being lost or suppressed. I'm not actually sure what's going on there. They seem to have a very interesting relationship, which hasn't really been explored, because Zen is kind of closed mouth about their past. I'm curious as to how Zen and Micah are going to continue to develop their relationship, because I think in this volume, we kind of saw them start to work together. Another character whose motivations I'm really curious about is Ren. He has a clear mission, but he also seems to be conflicted about that mission. He seems to genuinely care for the kids, and he could be on their side, but I don't know. I'm real dubious about it. I don't know what to expect from him. He feels like a very Shades of Grey character. If you ask me who the monster is going to eat, I don't think it's Keppa. I think Rin will be the first to go. Oh, that's interesting. Whatever Rin's mission and whatever his fondness for Kippa and Micah is, he's going to find himself in conflict. And I suspect him of being a double agent. That makes sense. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, and there's a war being fought or some one side is trying to fight a war and the other side is trying to prevent the war. And then Micah's side doesn't even give a shit about the war because she's on her own mission. But it's kind of sneaking up on her. Now she's going to have escaped from the queens of some country after killing a bunch of their people. So that's going to like put an even bigger target on her back. And then also a thing that maybe I knew, but I didn't really grot to, is that Mariko had a twin sister who became the Wolf of the East. And so Micah has an aunt, and the aunt does not seem predisposed to care very much about Micah at all. Because she's on the side of the witches and the other monstrum. And her grandmother is alive, too. Like, it's a nation of wolf who is fading but is still powerful. And who seemed to know what her mother was doing. There's a lot of threads. Yes, there's a whole lot. And this is what I'm saying, that maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe in reading in one sitting is too much. The art was beautiful, as always. Although some panels were very, very busy. It's a lot of information there. But it's undoubtedly beautiful. I just really believe it cannot be read like other comics. Because there's so much happening. Maybe I'll try a different strategy next time. Because there's just so much happening. And there's so much information. And there's so much world building too. I mean, they're still giving us these little entries at the end of issues. Where Professor Tam Tam gives a lecture. Which is, again, it's interesting. Because this is very typical of, of epic fantasy. You always have snippets, and most times they are really important to the narrative in ways that you can't guess until the very end. So I always pay a lot of attention to those snippets at the end of Monstrous. How many space beats would you give this? Three and a pot of honey. I would give it four, because I still am a little confused. Even though I think I know what's going on, when it's hard to like explain the story to somebody else, that can mean that the story might be a little convoluted. But I liked it. I'm interested to see where it goes. And I'm really happy that our hiatus is finally over. So we'll get a new volume this year. It must take them such a long time, more than any other comic writers, because like I said, it's so detailed and so rich. Both the storytelling and the art must take them so long. Since I don't read it in trade, I read it in floppy. Soon there will be three volumes, which means they're going to do probably a big omnibus version with three trades and one big hardcover which is what I'm going to buy because I'm super excited. Because imagine how gorgeous that's going to be. Because the trades themselves are super, super beautiful. But I really don't think Kippa's going to get eaten, even though you do. Save Kippa! Hashtag Team Kippa.
this year we are reading the anthology Robots vs. Fairies from Saga Press. One story, an episode. This episode we're discussing Murmured Under the Moon by Tim Pratt, which is a fairy story. Murmured Under the Moon is about a woman who works as a librarian in the fairy realm and then one day gets shut out of her library brutally and then has to work with somebody from the fairy lands to solve the mystery of why she got shut out and all the books from the library are going away and being taken. That's a good summary. So the problem with this is that I don't remember it. You don't remember it. I remember like the broad strokes, but I don't remember any of the characters' names. Is that a strike against it? I think so. It's just not memorable. And it makes me sad because this is kind of a queer fairy story because the main character has a girlfriend who is a book. Yeah, so it's living books. They are part of the magic realm, I guess. And they can take shape of humans, but also they get like drunk on reading. That was my favorite part of the story was the book, the living books. And I was like, I would date a living book. I remember the beginning and then the middle and I still remember the resolution to it in that there was the the fairy and the living book who teamed up to help the main character to like defeat the bad guy. The fairy queen was under spell by a man and he had control over her by controlling a book that she had written, which is something that fairies haven't done that much in the history of fairies which is write their own stories. And this lady, the fairy lady, the fairy queen, wrote a book called Murmured Under the Moon, which was a book about her falling in love with a human. And then now this new human has found it and is using the book to control the fairy queen without her realizing that she was being controlled. And this is why he was shutting down for some reason the, the library. And then our main character had to stop him. And she does that by using books to defeat this guy. Like, the only thing I remember at the end, really, is the team-up between those two characters and the fact that the villain was defeated by thousands of books crushing him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm upset because I just don't remember the story that well. It just faded. It, like, I read it and it went away. Yeah. Even though there are some really cool things going on, like the super neat romance and the living books. And the fact that I want another story in this universe where the fairy and the living book who team up at the end go on their own adventures because at the end of the book they pair up and they go off. Yeah. Do you remember anything about the other two stories that we read? Yeah, I do actually. I remember a bunch about them. But this one has just faded and I, I'm bummed because I didn't read it that long ago. It's been... A week, I think. Less than that because I reread it to prepare. And so the fact that I can't remember anybody's name... Yeah, I don't remember the names either. Oh, I, I remember it well, I think. So I'm just a little weirded out. Are your memory issues catching, do you think? Who knows? Oh, no. I still think I liked this one better than the robots one that we read. Yeah, I definitely did, because I thought the characters were better. It's another tick for the fairies. And I also liked the fact that the hero was a librarian. A queer librarian. Who saved the day with books. So I like, I want to give it a little tick for fairy, but I also wish I remembered it better. I really liked it. I, I would definitely give a tick. Okay, well. I guess I'm not giving any ticks because I don't remember it well enough to give it ticks. It's only been four days. What's happening? And also, I just really want the whole book about the living books. That was really cool. When I come away from your story not remembering it, but wanting the other story more, that's a problem, I think. <laughs> like the problem where your side characters end up like kind of stealing the show. You want to make your side characters interesting, but maybe not more interesting than your main characters. 
You have given Team Fairy two ticks, and I have given Team Fairy one tick. Team Robot has gotten no ticks. But maybe next time, because next time we are, we are reading a, it's um, an Elinewitz story. Fingers crossed. It Takes You to Tumble is a 2017 release by Cat Sebastian in a new series called Seducing the Sedgwicks. It follows a sea captain who has returned home to see his children after his wife's death and a vicar in a small village where the sea captain lives. It is meant to be a little light retelling adaptation thing of The Sound of Music. If there is a similarity, it's very light, so don't be alarmed if you maybe have never seen The Sound of Music or are embarrassed by The Sound of Music. I thought it was so cool! So I love Cash Sebastian, and I pretty much like all her books, no matter what she writes. And this one was no exception. I really liked this book. I have conflicted feelings about it. I knew you were going to. You made you made that look. I saw that that expression on your face. The uh, Renee likes this, and I don't like it as much as she does. Look, which I can now recognize. What makes you conflicted about it? I feel like it was too similar to the previous one that we read. Oh, really? I didn't get that feeling at all. I did feel that feeling, like, especially with the development of the story and the and the steps that the characters take toward each other. And I also felt that the personalities were very similar too. Wow, we totally read this book differently. Possibly. And I had other issues with it, too. Okay, well, what were those issues? Uh, I had issues with the female characters. I had a huge issue with the fact that Ben, the vicar, was engaged to a woman. And she was she had, she had, had um, an illness that left her pretty much disabled. Or less able to start with. Because it seemed like she was going to do a full recovery towards the end of the novel. But I felt like her story was too incidental to theirs. And although I'm very used to reading uh, romance novels in which there is also like there's always a fiance or someone who's jilted so that the main couple can get together, I also felt that this character, who seems like a super cool character, she was used as a wrench between them to just add more angst. Wow, that's my biggest complaint about this novel, is that I don't think it was angsty at all. I thought there was, like, hardly any. That's really funny that we read it completely differently. There were parts of it that had angst, especially with regards to their future and how they would get together and the fact that Ben had a fiancé. But also there were other things that were not near angsty enough. For example, the fact that all of a sudden there is a story about his brother who had been abused by his own godfather when he was only 16. And that story just like felt like it went nowhere. That whole story was like the center of the plot of the book. The center of the plot of the book. I disagree. The bad management of the estate and the abusive behavior by the lord of that estate all came from the fact that the brother and the godfather were banging and the son of that guy who was the godfather was really pissed off about it. Would you describe it as they were banging? Would you not describe it as the boy being raped by him? By a man in a position of power when he was only 16? I didn't read it like that at all. Did we read the same book? I mean, I assume we did. Because the kids slept with the guy for money, and I get real nervous when we look at sex work as, like, abuse. 
Well, he was only 16 and he, he was his godfather. Yeah, but 16 now and 16 then are two different ages. Would Ben react the way that he did if he had been so different? I don't know. I just didn't have that much of a problem with it. Especially when the character comes out and's like and, and tells Ben straight out, "Well, yeah, you could you could read it like this, but also I wasn't really doing anything I didn't want to do, and I just read it as sex work because his father was obviously not the greatest father in the world." I read the guy as being deeply traumatized by this. Yeah, I did not get that sense at all. From the way I read it, Ben was more traumatized. We didn't get the brother's perspective really, so I'm not sure how you could get that he was deeply traumatized by it. The way that he talked about it. And how he didn't want to talk about it. Well, just because somebody doesn't want to talk about something doesn't mean they're traumatized. Well, I think it's possible that I am projecting because I did read it as an abuse story. I mean, it might be. I, I might have read between the lines something that might not be there, but that's that's how I read it. I'd be so curious to see how others... And I know that some of our friends read this novel. I'd be curious to see how other people have interpreted this. But yeah, it was pretty. But it was pretty important to the plot. So saying there's no angst involved is. Let me rephrase that. Is it was used to prop other characters instead of being a, a story of that character on its own. Considering that I read it as an abuse storyline, I felt that because it was used as an excuse to allow Ben to finally quit the church, for example, it just felt weird to me that it was used in that way in the narrative. Oh no! Now I'm really worried that I'm excusing abuse by liking this book that's not great i just didn't focus on it that much i mean this is supposed to be like regency or whatever romance i know and this is why i felt it was so out of place and this is one of the reasons why i didn't like it i'm gonna go to goodreads and see if anybody talks about it it's got a much lower rating than her other books like if i just scroll through the reviews as they're all like four and five stars and hardly any of them mention what you do so bizarre Maybe because like that's going to be dealt with in the next book. Maybe it maybe it's because I've read so many romance novels in which the the male character is traumatized by that sort of abuse, for example, that it, it might be that I either projected or recognized something from other readings. I also think that when you're talking about abuse, especially sex abuse, when you're talking about queer relationships, it's really really hard. Because look, there are relationships and head relationships that would be abusive, but then the queer community is so different and things get suppressed so easily that you have to like adjust how you think about them. Because I think of my, like, my queer friends who've had relationships with like older people and it just operates differently because you're in a smaller community and sometimes you're closeted because culture is different and it handles queer relationships in a different way. Like, I'm not saying that like if that happened in like a modern romance novel, I wouldn't be like, what the hell is going on? But I also think I read it as been sort of glommed onto it as his own failing. Like, how can I continue on in my position when I benefited from my brother having to do sex work? And being abused by this other older person taking advantage of him. And he takes all this guilt onto himself. And there was just not a lot of time for me to worry about what the brother was going through. Because the brother was just like, I don't really know. Whatever, guy. I, like, I, I was fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Do not, like, be a martyr. And I just assumed that it would be dealt with in the next book. Because this is going to be a series. And, like, it's a very hard issue to tackle when it's not the character that's being featured in the book. Ben had to deal with his own issues around that. And there was just a lot, not space to deal with Hartley's feelings. And Hartley, as like an adult in the book that we see, he's super easygoing and 
he's friendly and he's socialized and he doesn't seem otherwise harmed by it. Yeah, but see, this is a trope in romance novel. I don't read enough romance, Anna. Yeah. So I can't judge based on this book. I'd have to read his book. A gentleman never keeps score. There's another brother too, which I assume will be third book. But this one doesn't come out until July. You really focused on like that, whereas I was focused on Ben's struggle with his sexuality and not cheating his friend who he cared for deeply out of like an actual relationship and how the captain was not emotionally distant, but sort of scared of putting down roots, which is, I guess, different for me than the characters who came before. Because in the the book we read before, the characters aren't worried about putting down roots. In fact, like they kind of want to, but here Philip was definitely afraid of putting down those roots and staying and not going back to sea and having to redefine himself based on being a father. And then eventually Ben's, all his angst is related, not to the relationship, but to his brother, like his brother's past and family situation and how his father was sort of absent and also not attentive to things going on under his roof because I was really focused on these other things like things that were actually in the book versus things that weren't in the book and that I knew would be dealt with later I mean I like the book I gave it four space bees his angst over over cheating on her his best friend and person he loved so much he was not conflicted for that long he just gave in very easily also the other thing that I thought (laughs) sorry I'm just raining on everybody's worries about this one it took place within two weeks, really. Don't most romance novels take place within two weeks? Not necessarily, no. I thought it felt like much longer than that. I always had a, had a problem with romance novels that took place in that short of time. It feels like it was much longer than two weeks, though. Are you sure? Yeah. Because wasn't he home for the whole summer? By the time when they were they started banging and Ben was already kind of like falling in love, it, it had been two weeks. And then there was more time, a little bit more time after that. Everybody's going to be like, wow, this book is not good. Oh, not necessarily. People will listen to you, too. Like, my issues with the book were really, like, that everything seemed too easy. That's absolutely true, too. Because, for example, in the the, the other book that we read, I really liked in the end that they, they created a community for themselves with other couples, uh, other queer couples, and I felt that because of who they were and the fact that they were independent, they didn't have children, they were one of them wasn't a vicar, for example. It was perhaps I felt like that fairy tale was more believable, considering the historical times where they were living, in which just by being with each other that was not only forbidden but also unlawful. So I felt that because. They were in a house with children. I just fear for their future, basically, in a way that I didn't fear for the future of the other characters. So it was easier to believe the fairy tale and the happy ending of the other ones than it was to believe in this one. I also think we don't know the end yet. This is the first in the series, and with the one we read last time, that was the last in the series. The, there was also a kid in that one, but you haven't read that book yet. I think it's really interesting, that perspective that you get when you start, like when you come to a series and you read the third book first, versus when you come to the series and you read the first book first. Although I really think it's interesting with Hartley and his godfather and it being an abusive relationship and how differently that you and I viewed that based on what we, like we, what we bring 
to our understanding of relationships, both queer relationships and relationships based in the past. I think that's fascinating. Because, yeah, I could read it as abuse, definitely, but I don't know because Hartley says in this book that it wasn't. And I won't really be able to like make a judgment on whether she's telling a particular story in a responsible way until I read how she actually builds it out and explains it. With that said, I did devour it. Oh. And I really liked the two main characters. I felt like it was everything around them. There was a lot going on in the background. Because the kids and then Ben's relationship with his friend. With his brothers, with his father. father. and Philip and his grief over the relationship that he lost. And his father's polyamorous relationships, too, with his mother and um, his second wife, I guess. There was a lot happening, which for me puts this book kind of like outside what I would call like re- quote unquote Regency romance and like into another category of like fantasy romance. There are examples of of Regency romance that have lots going on too. There are so many Regency romances with heroes. They are they have PTSD, for example, or who come back from wars. They are very much more angst than this one, and this is why maybe I'm not used to reading a romance that has this potential for angst without fully engaging with that. And I know that it's not his story, therefore it's not centered on him. But it just it just gave me pause that I felt that it was a prop. It's not bad to have to pause and think about that kind of thing. It would have never occurred to me if you hadn't said something. So well, like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misreading it. You're reading it just as well as anybody else's. And like I would have never stopped to think about it any deeper if you hadn't said something. Like having fun reading that's fun and like quote unquote light, I guess, is important. But if you're not looking at that reading too as a way of critiquing what you're taking in, like if you can't even do the background critique of it in the back of your head, that might be a problem. I mean, I think it's fine to like trashy stuff, but I think you need to probably recognize that in some cases it might be extra trashy and you should be like, mm, okay. What did you think about the female characters in this? I like the kids. And the smart-ass cook. Alice was more complicated because Ben was not being honest with her. I get real dubious about the lack of honesty in stories. Like, I liked her character a whole bunch, and every time she showed up, it was great. Because she was a super supportive friend. But I thought that Ben should have been, like, more honest with her sooner. Because it was kind of cruel. Philip invited her for dinner. That was terrible. Jesus fucking Christ. I guess another thing that I really liked about it, which is something that I liked about the first book too that I read, they felt attracted to each other and then they just, there was not an angst of the fact that they were queer, man. Even Ben, who is a vicar, they didn't feel shame, didn't feel like a huge angst because I am, I like men, even though I'm a vicar. And I liked that kind of angst is not part of her storytelling at all. It is really nice. And the sex scenes were hot. You're like, I can find some positive things to say about this. Give me just one second. Let me think about it. At the end, how many space beads are you giving it? I would give it a three. Yeah, I'm giving it four. I will wait for you to read the next one and tell me how it goes. Because now I'm curious about our readings because we had such divergent readings. Yeah, I know. It was really surprising. That hasn't happened in a while. Not since Stargate. (laughs) Was this better than Stargate though, Anna? Yes. It was cute. It was too cute. And the whole Sound of Music was perfect, Renee. I don't know what you're talking about it not being like the Sound of Music. It was totally like the Sound of Everything was like the Sound of Music. There was no songs and there were no mountains. There was a tiny mountain. 
because they had to walk over to his father's. There was a lake. There were trees. There were frogs. There were the vicar. There was the vicar who was engaged. In, although in the Son of Music, it's the captain who is engaged. But nevertheless. I'm going to defer to you on this because you are the one who's seen The Sound of Music and I have not seen The Sound of Music. Therefore, you are the expert and I defer to your expertise. What? How have you not seen The Sound of Music? We've already gone through this, Anna. It's embarrassing. Have we? It's so embarrassing. Did I tell you? I went to the town where it was filmed and I went to the lake and I hugged the trees and I went to the church where they got married in the movie. Yeah, you think, I think we've had this conversation on record, in fact. Okay, all right, I'll let it go then. Just too embarrassing. All right, it's time for some recs and today we're doing something different. On our closed Facebook group, Space Bee Army, we put out a call for recommendations because it's great to share recommendations with as many people as possible and in many genres as possible. And me and Anna can only watch and read so much. So I went and got one wreck and then I went back and got another wreck from somebody else. There's two wrecks here from our fellow Space Bees. Our first Space Bee, Ariadne, wrecks all out. A new short story collection that tells stories about queer teens throughout history. Each story has a different tone and feel and they feature characters of various sexual orientations and gender identities. It's really exceptional. I wish this collection had existed when I was younger. And then I also had another one from our pal Jenny. She says, my rec is for the new Book Riot podcast, For Real, which talks about new and notable nonfiction. The hosts, Kim and Alice, are well-informed and well-read. They have great chemistry together, and they talk about such a wide range of nonfiction, everything from history to memoir to science. They're so pumped about learning new stuff, and I can already tell I'm going to have to listen to this podcast with a pen ready to jot down 20 recs per episode. And those are Space Bee Recs. Thank you very much, Space Bees. We appreciate your help in spreading the rec love. So, Anna, now it's your turn to tell us what you're going to rec. My recommendation is Children of Blood and Blonde by Tomiya Dayemi, and it's a brilliant novel. It's a mix of Avatar The Last Airbender and Black Panther. I cannot even begin to describe how awesome this book is. I gave it a 10. It's probably going to be one of my top 10s of this year. And it's all based on West African mythologies, which incidentally, the goddesses and gods of this religion are the same gods and goddesses that my family worships in Brazil and... It's the religion I grew up with. That religion arrived in Brazil with slavery. So it has a terrible history connected to it and how it arrived in Brazil. And it has complications to the fact that a lot of white people co-opted that religion throughout time, which is how I stopped being religions in the first place. Hard same. So what's your recommendation? My recommendation is for a novella called The Black Tides of Heaven by J.Y. Yang. This novella is from Tor.com, and it tells a story of twin siblings, one of which who has prophetic visions, and how those prophetic visions change the course of their life. And this novella is fascinating because in the world, kids are genderless, and they choose their gender later in life in a confirmation ceremony. I just love the way that this novella treated gender and built it into the world building, and it was just super fascinating that it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Goblin Emperor, plot-wise. Because in this novel, you have some magic users, and then you have some technology coming up. 
it had kind of the same feel where you had the the clash between the status quo and emerging tech. If you like The Golden Emperor, you might want to give this novella a try. There is also a sequel to this novella, and I think they're getting more books after the sequel even. Yeah, and reminder that we have also a series from GYN coming on the Book Smugglers this year, courtesy of our backers on Kickstarter. So if you end up liking this novella by J.Y. Yang and also the sequel to it, there is a lot more in the pipeline from Yang out there in the world. Okay, Space Bees. If you've read It Takes You to Tumble, I immediately need you to email us a way in. Please do. Tell us your thoughts and how you read this novel. Whoever thought that a romance novel would create this amount of debate. Indeed. If you would like to support our show, you can follow us on Patreon. And there are other ways to support us, too. You can share our episode announcements. You can leave us five space bees on iTunes. You can just retweet our tweets and like us on Facebook. So many ways of loving us. Ira created our show art, which is still rad after all this time. Our music is by Chuggy Beats and Boxcat Games. Susan is our resident transcription fairy, and you can read her work at fangirlhappyhour.com. We have a private discussion group on Facebook now, which lately has mostly been weekly celebrations of how awesome we are. You can search for Space Bee Army and request access, and one of us will come along and give you an approval. And if you have anything to share with us, send us an email. We are at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. Hey, you. Yeah, you listening to this episode. Have you had some water recently? A delicious protein-filled snack? Take care of your meat suit, friends. And after that, go and find a book to love. Unfortunately, in our world, there are no living books, but there are books to love. Thanks for listening, Space Bees. See you next episode. History has its eyes on you. Are you ready? I'm curious. Okay. You're cu- oh, you're curious.